Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this edition, we talk about the latest coronavirus news updates, as well as our team's thoughts on the medium to long-term impact of these unprecedented times, with Phil Attreed, Head of Investment Consulting, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation. Hello and welcome to our third Word on the Street midweek special. Uh, We're continuing to look to share our latest thoughts on these challenging markets and the news impacting investors uh, and their portfolios. I'm Phil Attreed, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting, and I'm joined once again by William Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer, and JP Yeagers, our Head of Asset Allocation. For this episode, we're looking at the latest in the global battle against the coronavirus, as well as having a guess at a few of the longer term implications. I'll also take this opportunity to flag that on the regular weekly call this week, we'll be welcoming special guest Adam Rouse. He's Barclays Head of Branch Banking, and he's going to be sharing his insights from the front line of our business at these difficult times. Um, Will, just starting with you, though, um, last week saw a few less hair-raising days in the market, even really as the news on the spread of the coronavirus remained pretty grim. Um, is there anything we can take from this or are we just simply in the eye of the market storm? Yeah, hi, Phil. And I think um, the question we're all asking is, are we past the worst for capital markets? And uh, I think we'd be very brave to, to put that out there. But I'm not sure the eye of the storm is right either. Um, the safest thing um, to say is that although we're really only really beginning the fight against uh, the coronavirus, um, we're probably quite a long way through the market reaction. Uh, So the evidence trickling in that containment works is important. uh, And so is the really vigorous um, policy response that we've seen uh, from around the world we've been talking about. Um, There's still a mountain of stuff uh, that we don't know, of course. um, But some of the news flow of the last few weeks has helped to de-emphasize the potential for some of the really really negative outcomes. Um, They've not gone from our potential future, sadly, um, these kind of longer lasting economic horrors, um, but they do look a little bit less probable um, and are starting to be balanced out a little bit by some potentially positive outcomes. So, you know, for instance, the slightly raised chances of um, jointly guaranteed euro debt, for example. So, I mean, the past week or so, it's given us our first doses of employment data. Um, Does it have any information that we weren't already expecting? Um, I mean, there have been some record moves and and that chart that we saw last week uh, on the weekly unemployment claims in in the US is frankly quite astonishing. Yeah, I mean, it's all pretty shocking, isn't it? And I I think, you know, the reason the speed that labour markets around the world have deteriorated is unprecedented really is because the cause of that um, deterioration is unprecedented. So most of the time you find that your kind of, you know, your staffing decisions tend to lag the economic hit. So unemployment uh, kind of builds up reasonably gradually in most kind of downturns, certainly comparative to today. Um, and after a while, you know, and that's really after the problems um, that we're facing have become apparent. This time round, um, you found that, um, you know, your lockdown was instantaneous. So, you know, so have your staffing uh, concerns have sort of 
been pretty much instantaneous as well. Now, the really worrying bit for us, obviously, is that these job cuts have been falling um, a lot on kind of leisure and tourism related activity, of course. Um, and that the problem there is that that's many of the least economically secure, um, lowest wage parts of society, which are being asked to take the hardest hit at the moment. Now, getting support to these areas fast has been one of the main challenges facing policymakers um, these last couple of weeks. Nonetheless, I think, you know, to your point on the data, we would still caution that this is not really like a normal recession if there is such a thing. Many of these jobs will be potentially uh, immediately available again after containment. Um, and in a way, quite a lot of the economic data over the next few months is going to be of more use to the record books than a discerning uh, investor, because it's really going to be describing a lot of the severe um, economic difficulties markets have already gone some way to price. We are nonetheless keeping an eye on Asia data at the moment as a potential guide um, as to how kind of quickly economic normality can return. Um, however, even here, you're not operating in a vacuum. So it's worth remembering, um, you know, you're starting to see the slump in global demand. On that Asia point, though, Will, um, I mean, assuming the containment uh, part of the coronavirus battle is successful, as data is starting to suggest, what about the next phase? I mean, I think for, for most investors, how do we all get back to normal working without seeing these, these outbreaks mushroom again? That's the question I think many of an investor is asking at the moment. Yeah, you're right, Phil. That that is the question at the moment. So, I mean, for those looking to Asia for a description of what come next, as you like, rightly said, uh, it, it, the answer seems to be that some elements of social distancing are retained. Um, but you augment this with kind of beefed up testing and contract, uh, contact t tracing um, capability. It's not easy. Even in Singapore, you're finding that kind of sparks from the disease's international spread continue to splash onto the island. Um, and so they really are having to work quite hard just to keep things that, uh, 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 you know, reasonably contained. Much of the region, you know, much of Asia's prepared, preparedness, uh, we're all struggling with our words today, uh, could be chalked up to the region's, uh, you know, to the lessons you know, harshly taught by the SARS, ep SARS epidemic, to be honest. The rest of the world has got to learn these lessons pretty quickly, um, you would um, you would argue. But I think the point for us is probably that, you know, it's going to be a while before kind of, you know, cinemas, concerts and other sort of types of mass gatherings um, return. But you could find a kind of, you know, a slightly lighter return to normality, um, not too far away. Great. Um, JP, let's, let's come to you. I, I know you and the team have been navigating, you know, the nearer term impact of the containment efforts. Um, but I suppose just turning to what are the longer term implications? Is there anything that we can say here? Or is that really simply still too much up in the air for you guys at the moment? Hi, Phil. Um, yes, in, indeed, as you say, the, 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 these times have been unprecedented in terms of intervention by governments, and they have made a very deep impression, most likely on a lot of different societies. So that's also why it's important for us to think, might there be any lasting impacts that, that we can think of um, on, on societies? So, for example, think of the role of governments. How have governments been navigating this crisis? The, how do societies view expert advice or following the science? Do we get more faith in the experts after, the, after this experience? Uh, the quality of the healthcare system or investing in healthcare, borders, elections. So there are plenty of things that, where we can think, well, does this have a longer term impact on how societies uh, will view different things? An example might be the potential for reduced polarization. So in politics, we have seen a lot of polarization in recent years. And actually, is it now an opportunity where they can look past differences and more unite behind the common enemy with this coronavirus? 
Another example might be a healthier digital lifestyle. So instead of my son being looking at video games, he's now continuing his karate lessons via online video by instructors or posting videos for homeschooling. There are a lot of different things where we can see that this, this period might have some yeah, longer term influences on the various parts of society. Uh, for investors, what, what, what could be potential examples we're looking at? So I think we've seen that universal basic income or paid sick leave in the past has been more on the margins. That could possibly get more into the limelight of discussions, increased levels of debt. So those are elements we need to think of what are the implications for different financial markets. Uh, and for now, we only know that time will tell. Thanks, JP. Uh, well, just coming back to you, another topic that's been arising regarding the, the difficulties that, that lie ahead is um, what this situation will do to trends in, in inflation. So a number of articles that I've sort of seen over the last few days or so um, were either suggesting that we're in for a period of hyperinflation as a result of, of all of the extraordinary policy measures that we've been seeing um, sort of activated across the world. Or that actually all of this has simply hastened a slump into Japanese-style sort of era of deflation. Neither of these seem very appealing, but there doesn't seem to be much commentary in between. Yeah, Phil, I mean, I think what we're finding at the moment, as you tend to find uh, at moments like this, is that we see uh, the rise of the armchair economist comes about and all sorts of things get um, forecast uh, forecast for the future. Um, it's worth noting that even the high priests of inflation forecasting will privately admit that they are not very good at it. Um, the relationship between the growth of an economy and the evolution of its price levels is just simply too poorly understood. So, um, so in that context, um, I think probably we're comfortable saying that the current pricing uh, of inflation implied in markets, that's future inflation implied by markets, probably leans too heavily on an extrapolation of the recent past, um, potentially alongside an exaggeration uh, of some of the kind of deflationary potential aspects of this crisis. I think there will be, um, you know, and, and JP alluded to this nicely just now, you know, with you know his point that time will tell, but there will be some permanent changes to our working lives as a result of all of this. But I'm not sure how guessable they are from our current vantage point. But they will have important um, influence on things like inflation trends. But for the moment, uh, you know, we're sort of we're still in the very much the guessing category, and we can point to a number of things that might be uh, disinflationary about this crisis, and we can think to point to a number of things that were inflationary even before uh, this crisis came along, and that they might be exacerbated. So I'm thinking there potentially, you know, people have talked about for a while about um, reorganizing these international supply chains. Um, they were already uh, under quite a bit of heat after the sort of trade tensions of last year, but also environmental concerns. We pointed to those last year on this podcast about, uh, you know, the sort of the the increasing cost, environmental cost of long haul transport was already forcing people to think kind of, you know, some of these kind of more tightly wound uh, supply chains. Well, the coronavirus surely gives further impetus to that. And so some are reasoning that that could introduce more uh, less efficiency or reduce efficiency in the global market, uh, global uh, global economy, uh, and that should be inflationary. And that's just one example of one potential area that could have an impact. But at the moment, like I say, all we're comfortable is saying is that long-term inflation is underestimated, probably uh, more likely than not. Um, but we'd probably steer away from being too much more specific than that. Okay. Uh, well, if we part speculation about future inflation and, and stick to what we do know, um, JP. There's, there has, in fact, been an absence of inflationary pressure in, in more recent times. And if we couple that with an, an absence of moral hazard, and by that I mean, you know, 
investors being induced into risk taking by, by the recent government actions or policy. I suppose the question for you is, and, and Will alluded to this earlier on, is, is whether those two factors or the absence of those two factors might help Europe make some pretty unlikely steps um, in the next few weeks. Uh, and by that, I mean issuing joint guaranteed debt. Is that a realistic um, thing that we might see, uh, as I say, in the coming weeks? Well, as, as, as we've seen in the Eurozone, just like in many other regions, is that the, the, the impact of central bank monetary policy becomes more and more questionable. So what we have seen is governments announce a lot more fiscal plans to cushion the blow to the economy, especially in this time with low interest rates. Uh, this has mainly been done by a country-to-country basis in the Eurozone, but now nine countries uh, have have united, and among others, it's France, Spain, Italy, Belgium, Luxembourg, and they have suggested, given the severity of the crisis, that there needs to be some more solidarity and the potential to issue euro bonds in the form of corona bonds. Well, unexpectedly, Germany, Austria, and the Netherlands uh, are against this, and in a summit last week, the European leaders failed to reach a decision, pushing the problems to finance ministers to find a potential solution. Well, there are a couple of points to make here. One of them is that although it's unlikely to, although we think it's unlikely to see unlimited euro bonds, there are European institutions that could potentially issue some debt. So here we could think of the ESM, uh, the European Stability Mechanism, or the EIB, the European Investment Bank. But this would be limited. Uh, and another point to make, I think, is important that with a pandemic like this, it could potentially help solidarity. So although, unlike a banking crisis or Brexit which may, for a lot of Europeans, have been a bit of abstract. We now see this uh, coronavirus is touching almost everyone, everyone's life. Um, and we see already some of these things happening in the polls already. So in Italy, we see that the, the right-wing Salvini is plummeting, while Conte is becoming more and more popular. Thanks, JP. Uh, and, and an unfair question following up here. I promise I'm just keeping the questions balanced, not picking on you. But in, in one word, just touching on what you just said, do you think this crisis is has increased the potential for the European Union to break up or, or reduced it? So, so I think one, one recent quote of a professor of EU law captured it quite nicely. And he, he said the EU, the EU is internally ill-equipped to deal with uh, any crisis or unforeseen circumstances. And yet each time under pressure of events, it improves solutions. I think it essentially encapsulates what has been happening in, in the Eurozone in recent decades. If you would cast your mind back 10 years, who would have thought that the European Central Bank would be buying large quantities of sovereign bonds and credit, like Italian, Portuguese or Greece debt? Um, that would be almost unthinkable a decade ago um, when the Central Bank was fighting a crisis as well. Now we see that if the ECB will execute what they've announced so far, they even have to adjust their self-imposed limits. So that means that they need to buy in the proportion of the so-called capital key, but also with a maximum ownership for each of the countries of that outstanding debt. The same if we, for example, look to Germany. So Germany has uh, said they will let slip the so-called Schwarzenegger, so more looking for, uh, that, that forces a balanced fiscal budget. So we do see that in Europe, if there is a lot of pressure, and perhaps here, uh, if, if we think about political events, the Brexit is a more recent example in the UK where we see if you need to make difficult decisions, you often see it requires a lot of pressure to get to an outcome. 
and I think the same will apply for the Eurozone. So for true economic solidarity will require immense pressure uh, and almost running out of, of viable alternatives. Thanks, JP. Uh, well, you got your own back there because it's not the one word answer I was looking for, but it was a good one. Um, just finally, JP, though, um, I, I know the team's been making further adjustments to the, the tactical element of our portfolios. Um, this has been primarily, of course, in the fixed income space and in the bond space this time around. Um, and I heard you talking the other day about some of the amazing valuations that, that these assets um, or that we're seeing in these assets as a result of the pullback. Can you just give us a flavour of the opportunities that you're trying to take advantage of in portfolios at the moment? Yeah, as, 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 as Will highlighted earlier on in, in this podcast, is that we see that market have been moving very, very sharply. So, And also, in particular, if you look to the credit space, we see that... Uh, that credit bonds have, have, have dropped quite significantly. So if you look, for instance, to the better quality corporate credit, so that means investment-grade bonds, uh, we actually see that some pockets now price in default rates that get you close to a depression. And actually, if you look to that high-quality credit, it's typically quite unlikely to see uh, defaults in proportions like these. So we do think there is some value appearing in some parts of the, of the, of the credit market. Also, if you look to the more risky bonds, so those are the high-yield bonds. So those are bonds that come with a higher risk premium, but you have a higher chance that the, that the company will default. Uh, and, and given all the closures we've seen, it will be likely that defaults will go up. But at the same time, we also see that these assets have dropped so significantly in price that you almost get 8 or 10% in excess of what you would get on a government bond. So also here, we do think there starts... To, uh, this, starts, this starts to provide an opportunity for us to tilt client portfolios a little bit more into these assets where we think yeah, a lot has been discounted. Okay, thanks JP. Uh, thanks Will. We'll look to, to wrap it up there and thank you to our listeners uh, for joining us for this Word on the Street special. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier on, Nicky and Will will be joined by Adam Rouse later this week. We hope you'll be able to join us then. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.